All right, guys, welcome to the Ravid Show. Very, very happy today, obviously, because I have Burr Moses as my guest on the Ravid Show. Burr Moses is the CEO and co-founder of Monte Carlo, a data reliability company backed by Excel, GGV, Redpoint, and other top Silicon Valley investors. So obviously, a, a little about her previous journey. She was the VP at Customer Operations at uh, Gainsight, a management consultant at Bain and company served in the israel israeli air force as a custom as a commander of an intelligence and data analyst unit so we'll obviously know more about her from her and um, uh, before we start today's discussion obviously i wanted to let people know whoever is joining in that you guys have 10 um, uh, chance to win obviously Mont monte carlo swag and that too will be choosing 10 winners uh, three of them will be uh, chosen in this show today and the rest seven will be announced this week so looking forward to the discussion today we'll be discussing about uh, bird's journey about data observability about data quality building data teams so don't forget to uh, obviously ask questions around uh, a lot of data okay uh, without any further delay let's have bird here hey bird welcome to the robert show how's it going great to be here same yeah fantastic uh, and uh, uh, i was just letting folks know that they have a chance to win obviously the new monte carlo swag uh, so if i'm not wrong this is the new one right yeah for sure they'll, they'll get it chipped oh wow fantastic so what they only need to do is uh type hashtag monte carlo in the chat and they win uh obviously we'll be announcing three of them i already see four entries coming in so guys uh, don't forget to type hashtag monte carlo and have questions for burr uh, around data because we'll be talking a lot around data so obviously burr uh, i've known you i've known you uh, like uh, the data queen to be honest because you are uh, everywhere talking about data about data mesh about data observability about data team building and all of those things so uh, i'll have a lot of questions for you today but to start with obviously uh, why not introduce yourself to the audience today for sure so awesome to be here love your show love your energy um yes. so my name is bar um, I started a company called Monte Carlo uh, a few years ago. Uh, we're focused on helping companies trust their data, which is a huge problem that I have tons of thoughts and, and really looking forward to diving into that. Uh, and we basically created the category of data observability. Um, and uh, yeah, we, um, you know, we're, we're fortunate to, to work with some great companies and I'm excited to spend more time to, to talk a little bit about what that means. Yeah. Fantastic. I think uh, this will be a journey. Obviously, let's. Uh, I just wanted to talk about a uh, little about your early days. How did you first get interested in data and uh, when was it? Because I've known people on my show that they have got into data since years. Uh, but still, uh, how did it happen? Yeah, for sure. Um, it's, it's kind of funny given also you know, it feels like data has been around, you know, it's been around for like 50, 60, 70, whatnot years, right? It's been forever, but there's been such an acceleration in the recent years. So many new people entering the, the industry and the space. It's super exciting. Um, so I love seeing folks kind of from different backgrounds, um, you know, engineering product, things that traditionally have not been actually data now entering data. Um, but I digress. Um, on my background, um, I was actually, you know, I was born and raised in Israel. Um, 
My dad is mm -hmm. a physics professor and my mom is a meditation and dance teacher. Um, so grew up with both of those uh, in my household. Uh, I sort of like to joke that, you know, growing up, basically every, every question that I had, I would get two opposite answers from my parents. You know, my, my <laughs> mom would say something and my dad would say the exact opposite. Um, exactly. And so even from an early day, I had to actually resort to kind of data-driven decision-making. You know, I'd be like, okay, well, what does the data tell me in that case? I sort of had to make my decisions up. Um, oh, my. <laughs> so you de you're actually dealing it since childhood. <laughs> you are <laughs> in some sense, in some sense. Yeah, I mean, I think... I think data is all around us, right? And and Definitely. it's sort of um, it's in nature, it's in our day to day decisions, um, and now we're trying to figure out how to operationalize it. But it's, it's been here, you know, since forever. Um, you know, my background is um, in sort of math and statistics, and so you know, worked um, worked with data teams um, in various kind of environments. Um, mm -hmm. And most recently was uh, was at a company called Gainsight, uh, which created the customer yeah. success category. Um, and at Gainsight, I, uh, you know, had the fortune of building the data and analytics team that was responsible mm -hmm. for um, responsible for our own data. So we were, you know, eating our own dog food, yeah. if you will. Um, and that's where where I realized, you know, how incredibly hard it was to be the person who's kind of responsible for data, trying to use data, and trying to help a company become data driven. How hard that is! Like almost, it felt like mission impossible. Uh, yeah, exactly. Back then. <laughs> so uh, that's that's fantastic. We had an interesting comment from obviously uh, every every is here. Hi, every. Uh, so Monte Carlo is such a good name, and definitely that that was something in my mind too. That how did you come up with uh, such a name, Monte Carlo? Yeah, uh, great question. And you know, I mentioned sort of my background is um, is in math and stats, and so yeah. I actually. I worked in the statistics department, um, you know, with Monte Carlo simulations back in the day. Um, and, you know, when we started the company, we actually didn't have a lot of time to come up with the name. We started working with customers pretty quickly and we needed to come <laughs> up with something. Um, and I wanted something that had its roots in the data space, um, but also something that, you know, would be sort of memorable and, and even fun to a certain degree, right? Uh, I really believe that you know, sort of magic happens when you're working on something that's inspiring and fun to you. Yeah. Um, and so I actually opened my college stats book and you know just like went through kind of different uh, sort of names and titles there. And you know, one wow. option which was uh, Markov chains, uh, which did not sound great. Um, <laughs> another was Bayes theorem, which also I didn't think was sort of roll off the tongue so easily. Um, and then I remembered Monte Carlo. Um, oh, and that's it. We just we just went with that. And you know, for, for folks who are in data, they typically sort of, you know, know sort of its origins and, and where exactly. it comes from. Exactly. Wow. Great way to, you know, choose a name. And uh, definitely I can only imagine the work that you have started very quickly around it because you actually went to a book to find the name of uh, your company which is fantastic so uh to obviously uh to uh, moving forward i wanted to you know actually have a question for you around uh, something around the poor data quality at different stages of the data life cycle what do you think are the actual contributing factors to that yeah, so you know, I think in general, you know, we mentioned this like data has been around for a while, and honestly, yeah. the problem of bad data and data quality has also been around for a while. It's not a new problem, right? Exactly. Anyone in data sort of is familiar, you know. If I bet, if I ask anyone in the audience here, 
uh, you know, to tell me about a time that they encountered sort of bad data or, you know, when they kind of woke up in the morning and got a page of duty um, mm. or, you know, we just got into the office and suddenly got an email from someone saying, hey, the data lo looks wrong. What's going on? <laughs> Um, and yeah. suddenly like your heart starts beating and you start sweating. You're like, oh my God, I don't know where this is from. And I don't know what's happening. And you start just being thrown into the spin and then you pull in other people. You pull in maybe the data engineer to try to figure out, you know, is something broken in the pipeline? You pull in the analyst to make sure that, you know, the report was refreshed on time. Maybe you pull in the engineer more upstream, sort of, um, you know, responsible for, um, you know, changes to the website. There's so many different reasons for why the data that you're using could go wrong. Um, right, but so. that problem, that problem is just common to everyone, right? Um, exactly. However, I do think it's getting a lot worse today and we don't have the right tools and frameworks to deal with it. Um, right, and, so. Yeah, and I think the reason why it's getting worse is first of all, there's, you know, this is kind of obvious, but there's way more data sources, right? and way more companies that rely on third-party data. So like e-commerce companies or fintech companies um, or media yeah. or retail, there you can rely pretty in a standard way on like thousands of third-party data sources. And if one of those breaks, like go figure out which one broke and why, and you know, maybe they oh, just yeah. you know, made the change somewhere on their end and didn't let you know that, you know, that can happen. Um, and so the reliance on more and more data sources just makes it way harder to know when data is wrong, why. Um, the second reason why I think this is becoming a way bigger issue is because we have increasingly complex data pipelines and data architecture. So before we just had to like make sure that whatever data we ingested was right. And then that's it. We're done. You know, like see you later. You know, we ingested data that's accurate. Okay. I don't have, I don't have to worry about it anymore. But today your data goes through so many stops and transformations and different steps. You need to be thinking about it in a whole different way. You know, yeah, if you're thinking about, if you're thinking about data quality only for your data warehouse, that's just the, the tip of the iceberg, right? Um, but you need to think about the data quality in your data lake and in your ETL and in your BI and your machine learning model. And when you're thinking oh, about data quality, it's spanning the whole thing, right? Right. Um, I can only, yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, and then the, the third part, the third reason for why I think this is becoming more important is that we just have way bigger and more specialized data teams. So. We have, mm. you know, data engineers and machine learning engineers and data analysts and product data managers, which is a totally new role and analytics engineers and all these different people who have their hands in their data. And that's just the people who actually actively manage data. Think about all mm. the other teams like finance and marketing and support and R&D and all these other teams who are actually using data now. So it's exponentially more people that now rely mm. on the data. Exactly. And so all of these things sort of create the perfect storm for why actually data being wrong has a tremendous impact on on your company, um, and you know we're seeing companies that you know small a small schema change, sort of an innocent schema change, can result in actually millions of dollars lost for one incident, um, which is insane to think about. And then think about all the decisions, the data driven decisions, or sort of digital products that rely on data today. In fact, most of our applications actually rely on data, and so oftentimes. When our applications are down, it's because of the data. Like to give just to give an example, in 2016, I think Netflix was down for 45 minutes because of um, duplicate data. Exactly. 45 minutes. That's a really long oh time. My. I could have watched two episodes or something during that time. <laughs> <laughs> That's so true. Oh my. So, what do you think is uh, data downtime? Is is this something which is the data downtime? 
Yeah, so we actually defined sort of data downtime and data observability and, and sort of, you know, brought that language to help bring clarity for how sort of a new approach to, to, to addressing um, uh, data quality. I think data quality and kind of, you know, anomaly detection, all those things are very important, but they're just a point solution, right? To really address this, you need to think about this um, in, in sort of a broader context, right? And, you know, I think the the best way to think about this or the best way to manage this is kind of to take a page from software engineering book. Um, software engineering has also been around for a while, way more right. than data. And they figured out a couple of stuff here and there. You know, you can say that they, you know, th there's some tips and tricks that perhaps we can um, adopt from them. Um, and I think the data industry has a lot to learn from software engineering and that, and that we're right. behind potentially by even a decade or so. And so if you actually think about how um, software engineering manages sort of um, sort of handles problem of reliability or like healthy outcomes or healthy systems is based on observability. Um, and observability is basically is, is a pretty, pretty simple concept, honestly. It's basically the concept of just saying, you know, look at the outcomes of a system to understand its health. Um, mm -hmm. And that has been translated into some very powerful tools like Datadog and AppDynamics um, and all and others, which we're very familiar with, and any engineering team yeah. would be insanely crazy to run their operations without something like that. Um, right. What What if we took that concept and applied that to data? Right. How crazy hmm. is that? Like, are we crazy to think that we need something like that? Um, you know, I, I think I think I used to I used to think that. Uh, maybe today a little less so, but. You kind of have to be crazy to get, you know, kind of the modern data stack. You know, if you have a data lake, a data warehouse, a BI, let's just say you have like, you know, um, S3, Looker, um, Snowflake, Databricks, right? You invest right. so much in kind of building a state-of-the-art um, architecture That's for your data team, but you don't know if the data itself is accurate. Um, someone sort of said it's kind of like uh, having a Ferrari, but keeping it in your garage, right? Um, uh, and so, you know, I think the, the concept of data downtime, which we defined as periods of time when data is missing, inaccurate or otherwise erroneous, um, helps us to define kind of the world of what data observability includes. And so um, we actually did a lot of work to define what data observability means. Um, right. And that includes sort of at the intersection of data quality, data lineage um, and data governance. Yes, definitely. And uh, Robert here definitely says it's a crazy field, so much information to learn. And that's so true, right? Uh, it's uh, You've just mentioned about so many fields, but all the fields somewhere are connected to data. And data is like obviously the king here. So uh, we have an interesting question that I would want to pick from uh, the audience here uh, by Anmol Sharma. How can you see through numbers or data to find out the pattern responsible for its bad quality? Like, what is that approach of yours? So I'm sure everyone has a different approach, but but definitely want to hear yours. Yeah, you know, it's kind of interesting. When I started Monte Carlo, I thought the same thing as you did. I was like, well, everyone has their different approach, right? Exactly. And actually, I was like, you know what? I'm going to collect some data to check if that's true very meta. Um, and so I actually researched and spoke to hundreds of data teams ranging from small startups um, and, you know, just data-driven organizations to larger organizations like Netflix and um, Facebook who invested, you know, thousands of engineers to solve this problem. 
And I actually asked them, what does bad data look like to you? And how do you deal with data quality? So both of those questions I asked. I asked, um, when when data goes wrong, what does it look like? Uh, How do you know it's wrong? And some people shared, you know, there's like a high, you know, simple things like there's way more rows than I expected or way less rows. There's like a higher rate of null values. Um, you know, the distrib- the sort of value of the field is like way out of whack, way, you know, not what I expected. Um, mm. There's very many different reasons, right, that people sort of mention that. And then the second thing that I asked was, how do you actually resolve it? What are the things that you do to, um, to solve for, for data quality? And you know what the interesting thing was, was that I was shocked to learn is that actually there is a pattern actually there are similarities yes um (laughs) totally new i know uh it actually blew my mind right i was like oh you know actually there is a strong pattern here and actually we can standardize an approach that is that is strong and that is compelling and can bring value um and so we actually define sort of five pillars of data observability um, and if you actually monitor and track and instrument and analyze these five um, pillars, you can get a very strong handle on the health of your data. Um, and yeah. those that includes data quality, but not only. Um, so the five pillars, the first is freshness. Um, mm-hmm. so that's everything about the timeliness of your data. Is the data arrived on time? Um, okay. The second is volume. Um, so I mentioned the example with the number of rows, higher or lower than what you expect, mm-hmm. um, file size, the third is schema, um, so the organization of the data, um, yeah. whether the data is added, removed. So many times, bad data and data that can't be trusted is actually because of the schema change. Um, the fourth is uh, distribution, and this is where kind of you know sort of machine learning applies pretty heavily, where um, you can you can actually look at historical value to do um, analysis of um, you know what you expect a certain value to be at the field level. Right. And it can be starting from pretty basic things like you know null values and stuff like that, but you know also very sophisticated ML-driven um, right. uh, patterns. Um, and then the fifth pillar, which is very important, which is lineage. Um, and lineage, both at the field level and at the table level, actually helps us to understand the meaning of this. So I would even posit to say these five, these four pillars are you know. It's without lineage, um, it's very hard to actually understand whether they matter or not. Um, So I'll give you an example. Like, let's say you have a particular table um, that has a freshness problem. Like, the data just didn't arrive. And, you know, you look at downstream implications, and no one is using that table. Like, nobody has used it since 2012. That table is just there since 2012, (laughs) taking up space and not being used by anyone. Do you care if there's a freshness problem there? No, you don't. In fact, like don't send that to don't send that alert to me. I don't care about it, right? Um, However, what if there's a problem in a table and there's thousands of dependencies on it, and actually your CEO or even your customer is looking at that data every day? Mm. I wouldn't want to mess with that table. I would want to know about that problem immediately, right? Um, and so that's how, you know, we sort of bring all of these together. And I think historically, we really thought of this as like data quality or data lineage or data governance very separately. And I think those silos require people to end up like buying sort of a mishmash of different tools or trying to build different things when actually I think that power comes from the combination of them. 
Um, and from taking lineage and applying it to data quality and taking data quality with the context that lineage and metadata and a lot of other information actually gives you. Um, you know, I would go to even say that like metadata by itself is actually tremendously useless. Um, but if you apply it to the question of, can I trust my data? And where does the data come from? And does anyone care about this data? That's when it really becomes interesting. Um, that's when you're able to actually solve real customer problems um, yeah. is what I think. Yeah, definitely, it does make sense. And there was a question actually from Dan uh, about the data downtime, but uh, how do you quantify bad data and data downtime that might make the business case for introducing Monte Carlo easier? Interesting. Yeah, super interesting. How to how to quantify bad data and data downtime? Yeah, super like such a fantastic question. Um, and by the way, we actually wrote a full blog post about this, so I'll, I'll post that after. I think the interesting thing is a couple of thoughts. One. Here's a trick. Even if you're not quantifying how much you're paying for bad data, you are paying for it right now. You already are, um, whether you wanted to or you didn't want to. And you know why? Because it's part of your day to day. Because if you ask any data team and the, the first data team that tells me our data is 100% accurate, we never have any data problems, I would be like, like, what is going on? <laughs> what is your secret, right? I've never heard that comment from anyone. Like, no one ever said our data is 100% accurate. Um, and so the fact that the reality is that, you know, wanting or not, you are paying for this and you are, um, you know, you are spending cycles on this already. Um, now, how do you actually quantify what this means for, for your organization can be in a few different ways. And most of our customers think about it um, on a few different levels. The first is, how much time are you and your team, um, curious curious about Dan and his team, how much time do you and your team actually spend on data fire drills? Um, what we found is that this can be as little as 20 to 30% and as high as 70 to 80% uh, of teams' times. And you know, if you're running a team of like five to six engineers or even you know 500 to 600 engineers, that's a lot of time, right? That can be way more than a full-time employee who's spending time just on data fire drills. Um, and that's very, that's, you know, a, a waste, a waste of time, right? The second thing is like, think about all the things that you could do if you were not doing this, right? Sort of new features that you could be releasing, um, you know, new sort of uh, uh, reports for your, for your customers, internal and external, et cetera. Um, and then I think, you know, the third way just that folks think about this is like, what is the implication of, um, of a bad or a decision that's been based on bad data, right? Um, so for some organizations, for example, you know, um, sort of, uh, you know, an example comes to mind, we're talking to a data team that um, sort of a marketplace um, and data drives their pricing algorithm. Um, and so you can imagine that if there's wrong data feeding their pricing algorithm, they might be overcharging or undercharging. Um, and right. they actually notice that they literally lose you know, tens of millions of dollars because of bad data feeding their pricing yep. algorithm. Um, so seeing actually how you use data in what way um, really, really impacts the answer to this. Um, and I think, you know, again, I'll just go back to like, even if we don't know exactly how uh, for your particular organization, rest assured that it is, um, it is quite expensive, uh, the impact of, of data downtime. Oh, yes. Far less than we actually give credit to it, I think. 
Yeah, exactly. And this is a fantastic answer. And thanks for that, Bar. Uh, obviously, uh, before I pick another question from Michael, I just wanted to remind our audience that uh, we are giving away 10 swag from Monte Carlo. And what you just need to do is type uh, hashtag Monte Carlo in the chat so we can keep the ball rolling. And by end of this show, we'll be announcing three winners and uh, keep, the, keep it rolling. So yeah, uh, Michael's question is here. It, uh, Michael is asking, how is data used to deal with issues of burnout in the workplace? Oh, wow. That, yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, well, honestly, I'd love to learn more um, from Michael on how, you know, what uh, what is sort of behind this questions and, and get more detail. So maybe we can take that offline. But, you know, I think um, sort of on the, the issue of, of burnout, some of the things that I've, I've sort of seen folks actually try to to use data to deal with um, actually starts with kind of any other problem that you would deal with, which is start measuring, right? If you don't instrument and measure, then you actually don't have data, right? Um, right? If if um, if you're not figuring out, if you're not tracking and measuring, how are you ever going to improve on something? And so perhaps the very first step, again, probably have to learn more a little bit Michael's case, but perhaps the first step is to, try to figure out how do I measure burnout in the workplace? And I think burnout is a topic that has become way more sort of top of mind for folks in the last year, especially with the pandemic, um, even more than a year. And so it's top of mind for lots of folks. Um, and so what can you, what measures can you put in place to figure out how are we doing on burnout, right? What And what is an acceptable or non-acceptable rate and where do we wanna be, right? And that can be, you know, um, employee NPS, right? Yeah. So asking folks like, know how happy you know folks know NPS um, net promoter score sort of score from zero to ten um, and you know you can you can measure folks happiness um, uh, or burnout in the workplace and see how you want to improve on that on a weekly or monthly or quarterly basis right um, yeah. so I think you can get very data-driven um, with some of these issues around kind of team management burnout being one example of them um, you know, from measuring measuring different um, indicators of that. Um, um, yeah, but happy to take that offline and and help brainstorm more ways. Employee NPS yeah. is just one example. Yeah, I think it's one of the topics which is very hot today, and there, there's a lot to talk about. And obviously, this burnout might be different from what we are thinking. But uh, nice question, uh, Michael. And uh, there was a obviously a fantastic comment from Dr. Angel. Well, Monte Carlo sounds to me like a Fitbit for data engineers. <laughs> that's so true. That's amazing. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's yeah, that's that's such a great analogy. Um, keeps you fit. <laughs> Uh, keeps you walking, right? Keeps you running. Um, uh, for sure, I love that. Um, I mean, it's sort of interesting, right, to think about kind of how we how we think about um, you know the health of the health of data or the health more broadly. Um, it's a very very meta um, you know meta meta metaphor here because we sort of um, you know we, we actually use Monte Carlo internally to check ourselves. So you would probably want. Monte Carlo for the Fitbit. You need a Fitbit for the Fitbit for data engineers to make sure that the data is trusted. So, yeah, exactly. Sounds good. Nice one, uh, Doctor Angel. So there was a very interesting question from Edinka. Uh, what is the biggest data problem you have ever dealt within your career, and how did you solve the problem? Interesting. Yeah, that's a super interesting question. Um, you know, I think there's there's definitely like various um, sort of data problems. Um, 
And those have also like changed throughout the years, right? So the type of problems that we were dealing with, you know, seven and 10 years ago are not the same problems that we're thinking about now, you know, in terms of scalability and reliability um, of the architectures that we're using and um, also its applications, right, uh, for the data. Um, I know this might be a combat answer, but honestly, the biggest data problem that I ever dealt with was helping our organization trust our data. Um, for us, you know, um, you know, I'll sort of share a little bit more about this story, but um, this was sort of, I think this was back in, in 2016 as well as 2017. Um, I was at Gainsight and um, as a company, we were trying to become uh, a lot more data driven. And, you know, back then, um, uh, it wasn't as well understood how to do that. Uh, we've come a really long way in the last few years. And you know, I remember as an organization, we were like, okay, let's get a lot more data driven. Let's actually use data to drive our decisions around customer success. So I'll just give you an example, try to identify which customers are at risk of churn, right? What are some of the leading indicators that we can identify? So what are some of the things that we have data about for customers that we can track? So for example, the number of support tickets. Is a lot of support tickets, wow. is that a good sign or a bad sign? Um, zero support tickets. You would think that having zero support tickets is actually great, right? Because it means that people don't have any problems. In fact, we actually found that having zero support tickets is as bad as having a ton of support tickets because it basically means that they're disengaged um, the customer, right? So there's a lot of different ways that you can look at data, right? You can look at product adoption data. Are they actually using your product? How are they using your product? Um, how many support tickets they filed, how do they engage with your blogs and content. Right? There's a lot of different data that you can use to identify churn and, and, and drive expansion as well with your base. Um, yeah. And so we were trying to get better at that and also help our customers get better at that. And the problem was that every single morning I would wake up and someone would be like, hey, something's wrong with the data. Hey, something's wrong with the data. And so we couldn't build anything. We were just the, playing this like whack-a-mole game like, Oh, let's fix this report. Oh, let's fix this pipeline. Oh, this job got like all these things that we had to fix. It's like we don't even have time to actually work on what our customers need. We're just trying to figure out whether we can use our data or not, which is crazy. Um, and I knew that if we couldn't trust our data, we couldn't let our, our customers trust our data. So I remember our CEO would email me saying, you know, what's going on? Um, and so you know, we actually like, you know, me and my team, we got into a room and we sort of like brainstormed and like, you know, whiteboarded what we want the solution is. And then we sort of like hacked it together, um, you know, like come up with this like solution for now, kind of like a Band-Aid. And I was like, mm -hmm. why is there no easier way to do this? Like, are, am I crazy? Is the world crazy? <laughs> like, are you, like, who's crazy here? <laughs> right? Like, what is going on? Um, why do I need to, like, go in and, like, hack this random solution um, to a problem that's, like, very important? And I actually think will become more important. Um, yeah. And so we hacked together a solution, and then we helped our customers actually implement it. Um, and it actually helped us. And I remember thinking, like, why doesn't this exist? Um, and so yeah. that is probably the biggest sort of problem, the biggest data problem that I've ever dealt with. And the way that I solved the problem was by starting Monte Carlo. I was like, I cannot imagine a world where we don't have something like this. And I've experienced this so deeply. And I know my colleagues and folks sort of in the data space feel the same thing. There has to be right. a solution to this. Um, and, you know, I, I just stopped sleeping at night because I was like, we have to solve this. We have to solve this. Um, and you know, just just having that conviction 
um, you know, com sort of gave me gave me the confidence that you know I think we can solve this, and I think we should. Um, and so there's something really sort of fun about kind of the the founder sort of entrepreneurial path of being able. Mm -hmm. I feel very fortunate that I'm able to work on a problem that I personally experience and that I'm very very passionate about. And you know, I'm like, we have to solve this, right? We just have oh, to. Man. Uh, not just for us, but for the industry. We just, we need to help people make sure that they can use their data. Otherwise, what are we doing here, right? <laughs> it's like everything else is just is just moot, right? If we can't actually use our data. Oh yes, definitely. I, I, I know one person that in data and he's David Nickerbocker. He always tells me that if I can't save a life through data science, I'm not doing it. <laughs> and that's <laughs> such a great thought, right? Yeah, if, we if should have our bar. Yeah, the yes. bar should be really high. Definitely. So before I take uh, another question from David, and he has asked a very uh, difficult question, I must say, about um, uh, which public figure do you admire the most? So before coming to that, obviously, I have a question, obviously, about uh, the data teams, since you were talking about that. So what would be your advice to the data teams moving to decentralized data structures like data mesh? So how would you? Uh, talk about it. Yeah, so the concept of data mesh is very hot. Um, and uh, Jamak Dabani, who um, coined the term data mesh and sort of you know, thought leader um, uh, who talks a lot about that. We actually, we were on a, on a podcast um, last week. Um, and so, you know, encourage folks to, to check it out. She explains very, articulates very clearly how she thinks about this concept. Um, I'm, yeah. I'm a big fan of that and her work. You know, I think the way that I sort of see data mesh is, um, Honestly, I actually see this kind of from the perspective of our customers, where if I get on a call with a customer, you know, some, I actually talked to VP R&D um, just a few weeks ago, sort of a large um, ad tech company who told me, you know, I've been in data for the last decade and I've been looking for something to help me conceptualize how do I build my data organization, how to build a data-driven company. And I've been looking for this for years and then suddenly I read this data mesh article and boom, it clicked, like I wow. get it. And I finally understand how I want to build the team and how I want to build the, the company around it and what I need to do. Wow. And so I think for folks who have been in software engineering, have seen sort of the, you know, the move from monolithic to microservice architecture, they get that change. And now they see sort of how the concept of data mesh is applying that to data. So moving from sort of decentralized to decentralized or kind of um, best of both worlds, if you will. And it just clicks with people. And actually the idea is quite simple, right? Um, uh, which is why I think it's brilliant. Um, I think the thing that's sort of hardest for people in their sort of journey to data mesh or journey in this transformation is a few things. One, it's early days, so not many folks have made that transition. Um, and the second, it's a really hard people problem. It's actually less of a data problem, I think, than a people problem. Uh, I think a lot of sort of the problems that data mesh solves are, are actually people problems. So problems like, for example, you know, in, in, in sort of the prior world before data mesh, you know, there might be a centralized team that has, um, you know, that's responsible for everything around data and whatever you need, you need a report, you need to add a data source, you need to make a change, it has to go through them. And so this team basically have this like backlog of like maybe a couple of years of things and like, see you later if you like actually have something you need to get done, right? Not, not happening, not in 2021. Um, 
And so centralized teams get really, really um, uh, bombarded with requests and actually are unable to move fast. And the organization just gets stuck in that situation. Um, another common problem that happens is that there's sort of this kind of finger pointing blame game where the, the data consumers, data scientists or data analysts will, will blame sort of data engineering for problems and data engineering will blame software engineering. And there's this like whole like ownership question um, of like who's actually responsible for getting the data and on time and all that stuff. Um, right. And the, the concept that Data Mesh sort of um, introduces is one where you have a centralized team that's responsible for sort of a platform, but there's also domain specific ownership um, mm. on specific yeah, exactly. And so um, that allows teams to move fast and to build things that are particular for that domain, for example, just for finance or just for marketing um, and to sort of identify the data that you need and, and, and build the pipelines for that and build the, the reports, and the models for it. Um, and yes, there are best practices and standards that are developed at the centralized team, um, but each domain uh, specific team has the autonomy that they need. And it's more of a self-serve model, if you will. And right. that is a model that I see teams across the, the industry move to. Um, and really the biggest change there is how do you get folks to sort of embrace this, this new model of working? Um, but I'm seeing more and more uh, very strong results of this working, especially around the idea of self-serve. Um, and how do you actually make the data accessible to, to these, um, these domain-specific teams um, and allow them to move faster? So I think it's a very cool idea that speaks to many people um, who have been struggling for a long time figuring out how do we actually like build strong data organizations. Yeah, definitely. And uh, also, Bar, how do you actually, uh, you know, obviously I want to take David's question, we are not missing on that, but uh, just one question from my end. So how do you think these uh, modern data teams get started with their building uh, the data platforms? Obviously having that ownership is definitely one thing, but still is there some way where, is there a route which, that they need to uh, pick and they can build the teams? Um, yeah, so we actually like we're actually writing a blog post about this, uh, which I think is going to be released um, uh, later today or, or tomorrow, um, hopefully, um, which actually like lays out kind of the the steps to uh, to building a data platform. So your question is spot on. Uh, you know, I won't take the fun. I won't steal the thunder too much from from the yes. blog, but. Um, but yes, I do think that there are, you know, sort of what you'd call the modern data stack today and sort of specific kind of um, things that you'd want to think through, like how to actually build the platform. Um, yeah. and, and, and so I, I definitely encourage like check that out and think through what are the different components that you need. Um, I think the same, the second thing to think through is like, um, how do you actually, we talked a little bit about data mesh, but how do you actually sort of organize ownership? Um, across the team. So who owns things like data quality? Who owns things like observability? Who owns things like access? Who owns things yeah. like um, governance and security? Um, those things are typically not defined um, at the onset. Um, and then maybe the most important thing, I should have mentioned this earlier, the most important thing is like define what is what is the goal of your data team or data organization, right? What is it for? What is it living for? Um, yeah. You know, you mentioned before, if you can't save a life, then you shouldn't be doing it. So how is your data organization saving a life today? Um, exactly. What kind of impact does it have? Because really, I think that's, you know, um, that's what we're here for. We're here to make an impact, right? Yeah, definitely. So that is very important. I'm just searching there. There's there's a lot of questions, uh, obviously, for you, uh, Bud, but I'm just searching the question from David because I don't want to miss that. That's in, uh, that was about obviously about uh, 
someone whom you uh, like in the data field and um, i don't want to miss out on the exact questions okay fine i'll just pick that question afterwards but uh, to move forward obviously I, i wanted to know about the customer success because it's one of the most critical thing for all the companies uh, but particularly when you are in data industry how can you know these startups adopt a customer centric approach to building their companies like obviously when you mentioned about uh, uh, that you actually went on to the company data and did you checked if there are queries coming if there are too many or if it's zero is zero actually good or bad for me i would say oh wow uh, there are no queries from this one but you had a different perspective and you found out wow because the company the there's a you know a gap between the company and the customer then because there's no engagement from them so what about this how how do you look at it yeah it's such a great question I think a lot of a lot of sort of the traditional ways in which we've built companies is to start with some fancy technology or you know something that's very self-centered meaning something that's like solving kind of something that only we've experienced um and that's you know kind of sort of human nature to do that um but I think if you want to build a product and a company that has real impact on customers you have to start with the customers Oh, yes. um and having this inward view is probably leading you down you know a route that might not be as as impactful right and so i think i really believe in kind of customer led growth and and customer led company building um i think that that's super important and actually kind of my from my experience at gainsight um sort of helping organizations um building customer success teams there's nothing that's more important than having a strong customer obsession throughout your organization um And so I think you know for us uh we went even back to the days when we just started the company the first thing was like let's solve a customer problem. It wasn't let's build a really fancy model. It was like let's find someone who has a strong pain and help them help save their lives, you know? Help exactly make it better for them. <laughs> <laughs> I got right? it. Yeah. Um, I think solving is definitely something that every organization if they kind of start looking from that perspective from starting uh it definitely gives them a better overview to build the structure in a way where it will help a lot of companies then and the teams as well so it it really does make sense yeah exactly and so i think you know that branches out to everything that you're doing right how you design your product how your you know sales organization works how your data organization works right like what data products do you build you know we we as a data team we can build so many different things what do we actually build well i'd say go talk to your customers ask what they care about ask what's keeping them up at night why are they awake at 3 a.m. doing things oh. what is that thing go yeah. solve that problem right and then um and then address that and so being customer first in in your mindset Honestly, I don't think there's anything that that could be more important um than that. Okay, yes, fantastic. I totally agree and thanks for that, Bird. Uh I've found David's question and here it is. So which public figure do you admire the most besides Bruce Willis? Uh, <laughs> a data public figure, I mean. So, yeah. Yeah. Great question. Um and love the love the hint about Bruce Willis. Um there's certainly, you know, a number of different figures that I think very highly of um yeah. in the data space. There's a lot of innovation going on, a lot of sort of different things that are happening. Um perhaps one one sort of person that comes to mind is uh, DJ Patil. DJ um, Patil. 
So he was, um, you know, the former um, chief data scientist um, in the United States um, and doing a lot of important work there to actually, like, you know, uh, bring data to the forefront. Um, and most recently, he's been doing a lot of work actually related to um, using data to combat COVID-19. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm really, you know, I think put, talking about saving lives, right, is, is there a better example? Nothing, nothing like it. And I, I, I trust me. I'm one of his biggest fans as well because I, I really admire the work that he does. He is very straight, you know. About he puts data first, and he, he's his thoughts are fantastic. And he's one of those that have the same similar thoughts that say that I'm saving life with data. So which is fantastic. Uh, nice one, uh, Bird. And uh, there was a question from Doctor Angel. Um, what are the hybrid organizational configurations and roles emerging which are data enabled and customer centric? I'm particularly interested on the non-tech side of enterprises, how businesses are aligning tech plus data plus people. Interesting. Oh man, I mean, we could probably spend a full hour just unpacking what's in this. I think you just asked the holy grail, Dr. Angel. This is like, you know, how do we, how do, we do it? Um, you know. Hello. <laughs> I think there's honestly, I think there's it, it's a really good question. And, and the answer probably lies actually in in that question. You have mm -hmm. to think through tech data and, and people very separately. Um, lots of people start with the culture piece, to your point, kind of on the non tech side of thing, um, which starts with um, figuring out um, what is the culture that we want to set and right. how do we actually become data driven and what does that mean? Right. Um, so, you know, when you sort of enable um, people with data, what do they do with it? So actually, you know, we had a great presentation with um, one of our customers, Calibri Games, a few weeks ago. We can send the link to this, too, about how they shared their move to the data mesh, actually. So they walk through their journey. I, I highly recommend sort of viewing that. We can share the, the, the resource. Um, one of the things that they are looking at is what percentage of their decisions as a company are actually based on data. Yeah. That's a really bold decision to make at the cultural level to say, we need to measure how many decisions are data driven. That's like in today's world, like so few people do that. That's so forward thinking and I love it, right? Um, that's so powerful to be able to say more than 90% of our decision make decision um, making is happening with data, right? Yeah. And so figuring out like what's our culture around that and the same with being customer centric, right? Mm -hmm. um, I think that's like, how do we measure that? And what is what does that actually mean, right? So um, uh, what what percentage of our roadmap, of our product roadmap is based on customer um, requests versus innovation that's, you know, separate from that? Um, what percentage of time do we spend on customer problems versus like, you know, other problems that are in, just internal to us? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a very bold cultural decision to say, we are customer first. And I'll give you an example at Monte Carlo, engineering and product is measured based on um, our customer success. Like making customers happy is the number one goal. There isn't some other hidden goal that they're measured about. That's what they're driving forward to. And and that I think is also, you know, not not very traditional for an engineering and product organization to be, to be gold after. Um, but I think in a company that says that they're customer success, you know, we better, we better do what we say, right? Um, yeah. And so again, like there's there's a lot that goes into that, but start thinking about uh, what does that look like, right? Um, kind of on mm -hmm. on on the on the culture and measurement side, 
Um, I think that those are probably good starting points. And then from there, kind of all the details of like, what are the different functions have to do in order to, to sort of align around that? Yeah, definitely. Amazing question, Dr. Angel. Thanks for that. Yeah. I mean, obviously, yes, you can talk for an hour on this because obviously I, I what I feel is customer, uh, talking about customer and being customer centric for an organization is the most important and Monte Carlo has obviously identified their customers very well early in the stage because you definitely focus more on customers and their problems so which is fantastic um, also uh, do you have any call to action before we wrap up and announce the winners but <laughs> well I can't wait to hear the winners but um, yeah I mean I'll just say thank you to everyone and um, you know, uh, you're welcome to check out our, our blogs and, and read resources and, and reach out if you have any thoughts about data yes. downtime or data observability. Would love to hear from folks um, from folks online. Oh, yes. Fantastic. So let's announce the three winners. I will quickly uh, give them a, uh, like a quick run of your website, too, after the, we announce the winners. All right, let's do it. All the best. I'm excited. Everyone. Yeah. <laughs> So we have 26 entries. We are drawing for the first one, and here we go. It's typically a, a great way by StreamYard. A very thank you to StreamYard for organizing such stuff where uh, we can collect names uh, through hashtags. Hey, Nea, congratulations. So Nea is our first winner. She gets uh, swag from um, Monte Carlo. So amazing. Second winner is Dr. Angel. Your lucky one and amazing questions. So thanks for that. Awesome. Yeah. Plus one on that. Yeah. The last winner for today. But what we'll be doing is obviously me and Molly will be going through all the questions, all the hashtags, and we'll be choosing seven more winners. So keep an eye on that. Sashank, you're the third winner. Congratulations. Congrats. Yes. Fantastic. So I was just, um, I, I just wanted to, uh, you know, let the audience know quickly about Monte Carlo. I just wanted to give them a quick show. So this is the website. Yeah. So uh, where are the blogs? Uh, Bert? Oh, if you go to the top. Um... Yeah. And it says, okay, blog? It yep, okay, exactly. Perfect. perfect. Uh, yeah. Okay. This is amazing. Yeah. So there's lots, this is an example of a resource to how to get, build a data platform. Um, and there's lots more resources around, you know, ways to make data engineers love working for you. Um, uh, more culture pieces. Um, this story about auto trader, how they migrated to um, decentralized model, it is fantastic. Um, Amazing. Yeah. I think I'm gonna check this out definitely after uh, our show because uh, this is like a gold mine. Uh, I I was just wondering where 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 I was wondering you guys have a medium blog, but uh, it's on the website itself, so which is fantastic. Uh, all right. Uh, uh, before we wrap up, and uh, it was fantastic talking to you, Bert. Uh, thanks for visiting the Rabbit Show. You are uh, one of the best people in data that I know. And I always say people to follow you uh, because there's so much to learn. 
but obviously if people wish to reach out to you which is the best place and uh, how can they reach out uh, yeah, they're welcome to reach out. You can email me directly, uh, bar at montecarlodata.com uh, or reach me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Um, yeah, and thanks for the kind words. I'm, I'm a big fan of your show and it was such a pleasure being here today. And thanks to everyone for the fantastic questions. Such good oh, yes. questions. Thank you everyone for joining in and thank you, Burr, once again. You were fantastic and uh, see you again on The Rabbit Show, maybe a 2.0 version soon. Absolutely, hope to see you soon.